dangerously close. This episode was brought to you by William Mitchell Audio. And I've got great news for everyone. William Mitchell Audio is giving me a second chance to compose a brand new jingle for their company. This is really going to knock your socks off. And if you happen to be an airline pilot listening to this podcast right now, go ahead and click on the autopilot because you're going to want a headbang. Okay, you'd like to hear it? <clears throat> Here it goes. Whatever happened to predictability? The milkman, the paper boy, the evening TV. Everywhere you look, everywhere you go, there's a heart, a hand to hold on to. Everywhere you look, everywhere you go, there's a face to William Mitchell Audio.com. Go to William Mitchell Audio.com. My guest today is Leah Wumboy. Leah is the founder of Hecuma for the Future, which emphasizes the importance of regenerative agriculture and provides educational events, as well as garden design and implementation. Hecuma means wisdom in Swahili, and for the future is a nod to all that we can build together instead of our camaraderie stemming from suffering we have endured. Leah believes that to move forward, we must examine our past and present relationships of exploitation. We must recognize and acknowledge that enforcing the earth to produce crops in an unnatural way, especially relating to mono agriculture, we have exploited people for labor in the form of slavery and today's widespread exploitation of migrant workers. It is crucial to understand that exploiting the earth and people go hand in hand, and we can make the choice to stop. We can use our ancestors as a guide and produce food in a way that is harmonious with the earth and what we claim as our values. Because of Leah's belief in a better future, she has dedicated herself to educating others about sustainable agricultural practices and establishing these systems across the globe. What's up, Leah? Hi, thank you for having me. You're the most patient person I've ever met. I, I, just to let the listeners know, I'm gonna edit out the first three times I tried to read that bio <laughs> and that's gonna make it seem even more ridiculous when you realize how poorly I did on the third try. But that is no, fine. <laughs> uh, but like I was saying before we started, I'm so very excited to have you on the podcast and thanks so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Of course, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I guess like before we get uh, into a ton of specific stuff, uh, can you give me just like a little overview of uh, what Hecuma for the Future is like in the sense of uh, what is Hecuma for the Future's uh, mission and philosophy? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's it's kind of evolved. I mean, all all things do. All adventures, you know, go in different directions than we plan them to. Um, when it started, I was just really kind of obsessed with food forests, which for anyone who doesn't know, a food forest is basically a garden, but it's based on a forest ecosystem. So um, it, it looks at the forest as a model. And then the way that you plant the plants, the way you make the selection, the way that everything works together, it ends up kind of working together like a forest. And then the idea is that over time, you have a system that's uh, producing a lot, but doesn't really require as much maintenance. Um, now, of course, getting them started does take a lot of work, um, but they're really, really great systems uh, long term. So 
that has kind of um, evolved as I've become more um, more involved with different things in the community. So it obviously food for is still being part of the systems that I would like to implement for people. Um, but you know, kind of taking more of an educational route, more of an event route, and kind of bringing community together. Um, I have kind of pivoted from just talking about food forests to tying that into conversations about food sovereignty. Um, so food sovereignty is important. It's a little bit different from food security because food security really plays into the system that we are a part of now and just making sure that people have food, um, but doesn't really account for the fact that a lot of that food isn't very healthy um, or it's not easily accessible. You know, we've got a lot of food deserts and stuff like that. So food sovereignty is really people having the control and ability to produce that food um, and then reaping the benefits of that labor, which usually, um, you know, those don't exactly correspond with each other. Um, so it's kind of evolved into that, like a big emphasis on regenerative agriculture, um, which I guess my kind of synopsis of that is like making the ground better than you found it. Um, so if you're planting a garden, you know, making sure that you're doing it in a way that feeds that soil, um, that fosters biodiversity, that in the end is a really healthy system. That was a fantastic uh, overview. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was a little wordy, but yeah. No, 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 not at all. And it was actually, it was amazing because uh, so many questions that I am going to ask you later, like, it, it's cool because you, you touched on them for a moment and then we'll get back to uh, a lot of that. So that's cool. Here's like, uh, here's like a thing, like speaking about like, you know, <sighs> I'll just dive into whatever I wrote, <laughs> you know, because uh, I would say like even even before we like, you know, what we would consider modern history, there have been examples of uh, unsustainable treatment of the environment that have wiped out uh, entire communities of people. Uh, but now we're doing that on a planetary scale. And in uh, can you explain uh, what mono agriculture is and what are some of the major ways it affects us globally? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess caveat is that I'm obviously not an expert on all things. So there's definitely going to be some viewers who might have more depth of information in certain places. Um, but basically mono agriculture, um, you know, mono being like one or singular is basically when you put all of this effort and resources into farming and harvesting one major cash crop. Um, so quite often that's corn. Um, I live in Nebraska. So across the Northwest, you know, we see a lot of corn, um, soy, um, but then if you look back in other places, you know, maybe that's cotton, um, you know, maybe that's rice, maybe it's something else. So, um, you know, and it's obviously not bad to grow these things, but at least one thing that I have seen in the reading that I've done and the research that I've done is that oftentimes in order to dedicate so much land and so much resources to growing one thing, um, that requires a lot of force. And it can require force with the land, you know, if you think of the inputs that you need to make the soil be able to sustain that singular crop instead of, you know, rotating the crop yearly. And it also requires um, that force as a labor input. So um, obviously, if you're going to be doing something at such a high scale, it re can require a lot of work. So, you know, that could be, you know, workers harvesting that either in the form of slavery as it what happened before or in the form of, you know, uh, like you had touched on in the intro, um, taking advantage of and exploiting migrant workers. You know, and then there's, there's a whole bunch of other issues that really go into that. If you look at, you know, farmers and, you know, mental health or farmers and quality of life, how much are they getting paid for these crops? Uh, it, it's really, it's really complex. It's never as simple as, you know, we're just growing corn. It's, you have to kind of look at the full picture of everything that goes into that. 
And I'll, just when you're talking about corn, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, and you were talking about food deserts earlier too. And just for anyone that doesn't know what a food desert is, just off the top of your head, it, it just means you live in an area where there's not uh, ready access to nutritious food. Uh, it might even mean that, uh, that even a traditional grocery store is kind of out of your reach. You might be, you know, the, the best thing available to you might be a, a Burger King or uh, gas stations. And a lot of that, that's, that is, you know, that's where corn comes in, in so many ways, because no matter where you, any gas station, if you ever go on a road trip, every gas station in the country is going to have a million things made out of corn, which is, you know, all of your Mountain Dew and soda and, and every yeah. single like uh, thing. And then, I mean, like there's calories in that you can technically live off it for a while, but uh, yeah, man, uh, maybe corn's not the best way to go for us as a, <laughs> as dedicating well, like entire states to crops of it. <laughs> yeah. So I, well, corn ends up in a lot of places. So, you know, of course it, it ends up in a lot of the foods that we eat as corn syrup. Um, but you know, it, it also ends up in other things as, um, you know, byproducts and, and a lot of it goes to, um, grazing animals as well. So a lot of the corn goes to feed for the animals that we eat later, or, you know, it goes and becomes a product that gets turned into fuel, you know, like ethanol, um, that type of thing. So a lot of the corn that you actually see grown doesn't end up making it into food. Um, so a lot of our farmland that we're using is used for crops that don't end up in actual food production. It's also, it's, it's my understanding too, that, uh, there is actually almost no use for the amount of corn that we produce in the first, like even once you've, once you've done ethanol feed corn syrup, everything you end up with, uh, maybe thousands of silos, maybe like hundreds of thousands of pounds of corn that can't be used. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm not as familiar to to understand like the full extent of our waste. However, <laughs> understanding our waste in other areas, I would not be surprised if that was actually the case. Oh, hey, let's like step back away from this for one second because you said you're in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been there, but I'm a I've been informed that my grandfather is from there. Yeah, uh, I don't really know that guy. I met, I met him like twice, so it's not it's not like I learned a lot about Nebraska. But uh, you were born in Kenya. I was. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was born in Kenya. I, I only lived there for about a year and then I actually grew up in Pennsylvania, which is where my mom's family uh, was living at the time. Oh, cool. And why would you, uh, go from Pennsylvania to Nebraska? Um, so we, we moved for my husband's job. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was curious if you were just like, well, this is, is a great place to, uh, to do this project or like, you know, to maybe do experimenting with like food forests or whatever. I don't, it, I mean, I yeah. assume that Nebraska is good for agriculture. Obviously that's, that is that, that must be their main export. I could be wrong. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it is, but as far as being like the main product that they produce and, you know, get their financial revenue from, um, I definitely have enjoyed living here and I've, um, connected with a lot of people both in or urban and rural agriculture. Um, that being said, I might not have like a great comparison because it it wasn't exactly something that I was interested in in Pennsylvania. So I don't really know how much, you know, communities differ, but people out here have been really receptive, um, you know, to me and my projects and my ideas. And that's been really nice. Um, I wasn't quite expecting that just being relatively new to the area. Um, you know, I'm from the East coast. So sometimes it's very much, you know, if you're not from here, it can be hard to, 
to kind of tap into some of those projects. Um, but I've, I found that Nebraska is really great for connecting with people on this because people are just really open and receptive to it. And I think really ready to learn more about food production and how they can get involved with it too. Oh, yeah. Um, one last question just about you too, though. Like, have you ever uh, gone back and visited uh, Kenya? Have you ever, have you seen it as an adult or? I haven't. Um, you know, this the situation was a little bit complicated and I would really love to go back someday. I'm really hoping that I can. There's a lot of family that I would really like to connect with, um, but I have not had the opportunity to go back yet. Um, but, you know, maybe in the next year or two, I'd like to make it out there. It's one of, one of my dream destinations. And honestly, like it's even on this podcast, like, so I've had a couple people, uh, one person in particular who uh, I'm struggling for the words, but the, the sanctuaries, the animal sanctuaries, she worked there uh, doing that and then like doing like kind of safari work, to, you know, that's how they like get their funding. And then I had yeah. another guest who uh, her main thing is she does tracking. And so she oh. had worked in a lot of the anti-poaching efforts. Uh, fortunately, Kenya is one of the countries where there is so it's, it's already, it's, it's actually really well maintained and like poachers do not do well in Kenya. I mean, oh, like okay. it, it happens, but yeah, like, there's places where like they're far more, it's easier for them to travel and get around. But Kenya is like, it's so popular. It's a popular destination. People are there to see these, uh, these beautiful safaris and like the, the Maasai Mara and all that. So it does protect the animals. So that's very cool. Anyway, yeah, enough about cool. Kenya. Well, <laughs> I hope you get to go and I hope I get to go too. <laughs> um, can you explain to me, uh, we, were, we were talking about like, you know, so mono agriculture, like that's, you know, that's kind of like what we got. This is this uh, industrial kind of bullshit thing we've got going. What is regenerative agriculture and our, what, are, what are some of the uh, regenerative systems that the Hekima for the Future implements and educates people about? Yeah, of course. So um, I had a really great friend who, you know, the first time that we really met and we're talking about regenerative agriculture, she defined it as agriculture or, or systems that give life. So if something is regenerative, it gives life. And it kind of goes back to the idea of leaving that soil better than you found it. Um, you know, soil is, is very complex. It's, we look at it as just dirt, as just this kind of you know, quiet, just mass of dirt, but there's this whole world beneath the surface, just like we have a world above the surface. There's microorganisms, there's, you know, worms, there's nematodes, there's root systems, there's a mycelial network. It's very, very complex. And unfortunately, a lot of times the way that we interact with it damages it. And then over time, um, you know, the things that live inside of the soil, the things that are, um, you know, nutritious to the plants that we have to grow, the things that support that plant life over time, um, we basically end up killing them as we strip off the topsoil, as we, um, you know, put inputs into the soil that aren't great for the system as a whole. Um, so regenerative agriculture basically really focuses on um, building and uh, giving to that soil. So that way, long-term, it can continue to be really healthy and produce. Of course, the immediate benefit of that to us is that we have this healthy soil that we can grow really wonderful food in. Um, you know, long-term benefit is that's just good for the planet as a whole. And if your soil is healthy, um, then hopefully that effect can kind of re reverberate out and be good for, you know, neighboring soil, neighboring areas. Um, so there's different ways to achieve this. 
you know, I think a lot of people think of just putting in like fertilizer and that being good to beef up and build and amend the soil. Um, but, you know, you kind of have to have like a full systems thought of, well, where does that fertilizer come from? What's the byproduct? Because a lot of fertilizer does have, um, you know, really toxic byproducts. So how can we put healthy inputs into the soil that aren't actually detrimental someplace else where we can't see it? So we're not thinking about it. Um, you know, so there's different ways. Um, a lot of that is how do you plant, you know, food forests are one great way because you basically would plant these plants. You're focusing on perennial plants instead of annuals. Um, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, an annual is something that you plant once or, well, you plant it once it lives through a season and then it dies and you have to plant it again the next year, basically. So like a tomato plant is an annual because every year you're planting a new tomato plant. A perennial plant is something that can live for, you know, more than one year. So for example, strawberries tend to live about seven years. If you plant asparagus, it can live sometimes, you know, 20, 25 years, depending wow, on really? the sound. Yeah. So I have no idea about that. Yeah. So those plants <laughs> just continue producing, you know, obviously you keep them healthy and they do well, you know, bushes, obviously like berry bushes are an example. Fruit trees are an example. So you really focus on these plants that you plant once and then they have these, um, you know, they continue to come back. So you don't have to dig up the soil. You don't have to disturb it. Um, you know, different plants function in different ways. There's plants that are nitrogen fixers where they have like this deep tap root, tap root and these little nodules on their roots and they pull up nitrogen from deep in, deep into the dirt and like pull it up so that way other plants can access that nutrient. Um, there's, I guess I'm trying to think of like a succinct way to describe it, but basically um, my big things are trying to do no till as much as possible. So can not continually digging things up. Um, if you're using beds where that's just what you're gonna have to do, making sure that you do a good crop rotation. Um, you know, I think for things like nightshades, which are like tomatoes, potatoes, et cetera, um, you, if you plant them in a bed, you want to give them a few years in between before you plant them again, because they're really pest prone. Um, they're prone to certain diseases that you don't want to just have in the soil constantly. Um, so doing your rotations, making sure that you use some type of compost or something to give nutrient to that soil. That's not going to be detrimental in another way. I like to tell people to use leaves. Um, we're kind of obsessed as a culture with raking up leaves, but leaves decompose and it puts a lot of nutrients back into the soil. So if you just leave them alone, they do their job. But of course, if you're raking them up, yeah. they can't do their job. Or, or, or worse than that. And it's, uh, I don't want to just sound like I'm uh, an old man going like, you know what I don't like, but, uh, <laughs> but the, these guys out here with these leaf blowers and you're like, there's leaves on my lawn. So I'm going to go out here. I'm going to burn a ton of gasoline to blow the leaves into the street. Like, what are you, yeah, what are you accomplishing? Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it, it's so hard because like, if you have, you know, a housing association or you have at least the cultural pressure, the social pressure of making sure that you have a manicured space, it is really hard to, yeah, for sure. um, to take part in some of these practices because people just don't think they're pretty and they don't like that. And they, they might not see the value in it. They say things, yeah, they're like, uh, you're lowering my personal property value <laughs> yeah. because your lawn is like uh, an ecosystem. So, <laughs> yeah, and it should uh, be an ecosystem. Can I, uh, can I jump back like a minute to something you were talking about earlier and you said nightshade plants and I, uh, I'm not familiar with that term, but uh, when you were saying that potatoes were one of those, are, is that something like like the potato famine in Ireland? Was that some was that uh, 
like a form of uh, unsustainable farming. Is that like kind of what happened there? Or um, you, I, I'm not trying to like I'm, throw like crazy curveball questions at you. It just popped. No, it's okay. I really, I'm not sure. Um, so, I mean, potentially, I'd have to definitely do some research because I have no idea. So, all right, but for certain, and, and like, I think something like so that's like this is closer to home here in America, and something we know for certain was the uh, the Dust Bowl, you know, mm -hmm. and like uh, which inspired like the book, like the Grapes of Wrath and all all that shit. Yeah. And that was definitely that was uh, unsustainable farming, you know, combined with other unforeseeable, you know, forces of nature. Yeah. But we're going to see things like that. Like, you know, people are concerned that might be happening in places like Oregon or Washington yeah. or like these uh, very like lush forested places because of, of the wildfires. Um, is is there anything like uh, kind of involved in that, like what the two guys are working on or like just or not working on, but thinking about? Yeah. So um the way that I would correlate that, I mean, obviously that's very high scale, but, you know, we are farming also at high scale across the country and we're doing it, like I said, in this way that isn't exactly great for the earth. I mean, I, I was reading recently that said something that Nebraska's lost something like 30% of its topsoil, um, which shoot, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really is. And I, I think that some people, they hear that and, you know, 30% as it, you know, as it correlates to hundred might not sound like that much. Well, think, or... think about it this way. Uh, if you lost 30% of your body, you would take that very seriously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, that's where, you know, so many, so many of the plants that we eat, you know, their root structures exist in the topsoil and uh, you know, that's where a lot of the nutrients are. I mean, obviously there's nutrients all throughout the different layers of the soil, but um like it's so important and it's so crucial because it's going to continue to erode and it's going to continue to break down. And I guess for those who are concerned with global warming, I know that a lot of people are not, but for those who are, you know, there's, there's different, if you look at a city and I've seen different graphs where it, it looks at redlining, which was obviously racially based, um, but redlining wasn't just a matter of where people could live. It was how those spaces were maintained and planned. So if you looked at, you know, white neighborhoods, they had more vegetation planted, they had trees and they had shrubs and they had things like that in their neighborhoods. And then if you looked at, um, you know, black neighborhoods or Hispanic neighborhoods, they didn't have those things. Like the city didn't concern themselves with planting trees in that area. So you can literally walk through um, different parts of your town. And if you happen to be able to take the temperature in certain spaces, you know, there's like the little like gun thing where you can shoot it out of space and it'll tell you what the top temperature is. Um, and you can see how the neighborhoods that have had trees planted, that have shrubs, that have grass, that have these different plants, they are significantly cooler in temperature than these other areas and these other spaces. And the ground is kind of like that too. Um, you know, it will be significantly hotter if you are not um, cover cropping. So basically when you um, harvest your soy or you harvest your uh, corn, uh, a lot of farmers will put down a cover crop and that can be you know, various like ground cover that will grow in your off season and then basically cover the space. And it does help keep the temperature down in the soil. So things like that are really important. Um, you know, it's kind of, I guess on a basic level, if you're gardening outside and you are watering something and you can see in your own yard, if it's near a tree where it has shade, obviously that water stays on that soil longer. It's not evaporating, but if you, if it's just in bare soil, um, in the dirt and there's direct sun exposure to that, it'll dry up and evaporate very quickly. 
Um, so you want to have some type of cover. You want to have, you know, mulch. You want to have leaves. You want to have something that can basically retain the moisture, um, but also keep the temperature down. And, you know, maybe like in your yard, that might not seem like such a big deal because it's just kind of small scale. But if you're looking at how this correlates to like large scale farmers, you know, that's how we ended up, you know, with certain catastrophes, like you had mentioned, like it's something that's really, really important. And this is, uh, I think this is really where I wanted to get to. And it's the idea that agriculture, we've got, we've got monopolies, we've got Monsanto and so forth. And they control the food sources essentially right now, but there has to be a critical mass. There has to be a point where like, if more and more people started creating a supply chain of their own and community gardens were much bigger or, or like which, what you're talking about food forests, you know, like large areas providing so much more, eventually the bottom line of that company is going to get hit. Yeah. And they're, they're going to have to, uh, I mean, one way or another, a change will have to be made. I don't know if you, if you agree with that. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I think to get to that point, there's there's a few factors that have to happen. So, you know, you talked about people being able to do this on their own, being able to have community gardens, um, particularly, in my opinion, something like a food forest or a regenerative system. Um, I think I see a lot of the times that community gardens are great and they start out really well, but sometimes as interest wanes or, you know, management changes, things like that, sometimes they'll fail, you know, so you'll see a community garden that was doing really well one year, but then like the next year, um, things just, things happen in people's lives, you know, and they can't keep up with it the same way. Um, and a lot of systems, a lot of things that we do, they'll have that single point of failure where if, if somebody kind of like can't maintain their commitment to that, then it just won't do as well. And the way that we traditionally grow plants, if they're not being watered, you know, for a couple of weeks, they're all dead. Yeah. Um, so that's why I like the food forest mm -hmm. thing is because even though it definitely takes a big push and a lot of work to get them off the ground, um, they're generally resilient systems. So yes, something might die, but something else might do better. And you can observe that space and you can learn from it um, and then implement it other places and then have these um, basically like these, these sanctuaries for people to be able to come and get this food. Um, you know, the other thing is people working together. So co uh, cooperatives are great. There's a co-op that is getting started here in Omaha called um, Omaha Sunflower Co-op. And they are really big on people growing their food and then basically selling it together with the co-op. Um, so the growers are the people who are members of this co-op get different benefits. Um, and then also, they can pr uh, provide that produce to the community at uh, different price points. So depending on what people can actually afford to purchase, because obviously, if you go to like Whole Foods or any grocery store, really, a lot of this food is just priced out of people's ability to actually purchase it. Yeah. Thanks, so we have Jeff to, Bezos. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> yeah. So we have to, we have to make it available to people at the price that they can afford. Now, of course, it's much different for me to make food available at a price that someone can afford because me as a singular person it takes so much more work it takes so much more resources for me individually to go grow that food than for a big company to do it but that's why cooperatives are good because people can kind of come together they can share um you know the work they can also share the benefit but i think like the last thing too and i've seen that more people are really interested in agriculture i think that people are kind of changing their perceptions of it we definitely have our traditional idea of a farmer. And then we definitely have our traditional idea of 
hobby gardeners just kind of being, you know, older people who just kind of hang out in their gardens, grow their tomatoes, love their flowers, stuff like that. And that's great and wonderful. Um, but growing food is activism. And I think that people are really shifting to understanding that mindset. You know, it's not just like this hobby that rich people do or this thing that it's fun, but it's not really for me. Like it's, to me, it's the foundation of all activism because if you want to march in the street, if you want to be able to have the capacity to be creative, if you want to write, make art, do all of these things, you can't do that if you haven't eaten. You know, yeah. if you live in a food yeah. desert, like, you know, I say this all the time, like your kid can't go sit in bands and enjoy playing their instrument if their basic needs are met. Yeah. So being able to feed people, um, produce this food for our community, it kind of liberates us in so many other ways. It, it allows people to do better in school, you know, be critical thinkers, be artistic, do all of these things, get really involved in this other stuff because they're not hungry. Like you can't do anything if you're hungry. And so, you know, producing food, feeding people, that is like foundational activism. And I think- so It's one of the most uh, insidious aspects of an oppressive uh, society is- yeah, like you're like you're saying, keeping people hungry or you know malnourished. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just no, no, you're good. <laughs> jumping in there. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a lot, and it's all it all relates to food. You know, if you look at parenting, I I've got two kids, and I definitely do my best to parent them, and I think that I'm a good parent. But I also am in a financial position where, like, if my kid drops their food on the ground, I'm not super stressed out because I can afford to give them another lunch you yeah. know but if you are from a home where people just don't have those resources think of how stressful it is for that parent who like that's all their kid had that day you yeah. know and that that food is lost and so that's going to create moments where people are agitated you know like gentle parenting is like this big thing which I love but like it's really hard to be a gentle parent when you're stressed out because you're fighting to provide for your family every day so like families can heal and people can heal by just having their needs met. And it's, it's so frustrating because we obviously live in a country with so much surplus and it's just not available to so many people. So we've been talking on this for a minute, but uh, these are some concepts and just like, I was wondering if you maybe can just kind of like uh, give like a brief explanation of a couple of these concepts. And the mm -hmm. first one would be, um, can you explain to me the concept of seeds equal currency? Yes, of course. So, Thank you. <laughs> um, so I actually recently had an event in mid-November called Seeds Are Currency. Um, so currency, obviously the way that we think of it, we think of a monetary value. So yes, seeds have a calculable monetary value that you can purchase them for. Um, however, seeds are, are so many other things. And one of those things that I think is really important is that particularly for people who you know, live in this country and unfortunately don't have a link back to their ancestry, obviously because that was taken from them. Um, seeds are kind of like a bridge to that history. You know, seeds are culture. They are the way that that food or that plant is eaten, the way that it's prepared, the way that it's used for, the way that it's harvested. Um, so seeds are definitely a link to history, to ancestry, to culture, but also, I mean, seeds if you look to the future and you look to the things that are really important, 
you know, you can stockpile as much money as you want to stockpile, but, you know, if banks fail, if cryptocurrency goes away and just becomes, you know, nothing, which could happen, um, seeds, if you want to exist into the future, seeds are obviously one of those things that give you that opportunity. You have to be able to grow food. You have to be able to produce food. Um, you know, it gives you, um, genetic diversity, which is incredibly important and in making sure that you can maintain a really healthy crop into the future. Um, it gives you uh, the ability to produce for your family, to produce for your community. Um, so seeds are, are definitely currency in, in their monetary value, but they're also currency in what they represent to individual groups, to individual people, and then the opportunities that they present into the future, the security that they give you in the future. Absolutely. And that and I don't want to sound uh, grim or conspiracy man, but, but yeah, but the thing is, uh, <laughs> you know, nuclear bunkers do exist and, you know, for a reason. And of course there are seed there, you know, uh, caches of seeds there, but nobody's stockpiling bitcoins in a, a nuclear. Yeah. Bunker. It's not, it, will, it would have no value. <laughs> uh, sorry, yeah. all the bitcoiners out there, but I mean, let's, let's be real. What's, what's really well, important here. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, everything has a valuation based on its perceived importance. So, I mean, the cost of a chair, the cost of anything, it, it's its perceived value. And that is the monetary value that we give it. But seeds are kind of one of those things that, to me at least, and the way that I think of them kind of exist outside of that, because we can give it a monetary value, but its value goes so far beyond that. And and it's, it's like this guaranteed value that, you know, if you're not using it right now, I mean, obviously you got to store them properly and, you know, make sure that they're stable. Um, but it, it has this longstanding value so far into the future. You know, uh, this is a little off topic, but it, it is about a seed though. Uh, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a superstitious man. I'll admit it. And I do, I, I do little rituals for good luck in here or there. And uh, whenever I find a new one, I get involved, you know, I'll, I'll add that one on. Uh, and one of them I recently wasn't re it was last winter. Uh, it was that if you found an acorn on the ground and you keep it in your pocket, that acorn will like help you grow your, uh, I guess your dreams, your aspirations, whatever. And I've been carrying this acorn around for like <laughs> a year. Yeah. I hadn't heard that one. Uh, just, I mean, I just, I'd never heard about it before either until last winter, but anyway, I've been doing pretty okay, uh, in my life. So yeah. maybe I can well, attribute to that acorn. That. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Hold up. It's time to check the mailbag. Every week on the show, we check the mailbag to see if anyone has written a message into the show, and then I answer any comments or questions they might have. This week's message comes from Psychedelic 4Lit. Psychedelic 4Lit said, <clears throat> Hello, bro. What's up? We got some top-grade psychedelic stuff available at affordable prices like LSD, DMT, MDMA, peyote, shrooms, chocolate bars, ketamine, codeine, syrup, and a lot more. So I was wondering if you might be interested in any of our stuff, Val. Well, first of all, I want to say, officer, thank you so much for uh, being a fan of the podcast and for writing in. But I do have to say, you know, I'm getting a little bit older and the only psychedelic experiences I can really handle, you know, these old bones are uh, adrenochrome blood rituals. So, you know, that old chestnut. <laughs> I said chestnut. Anyway, 
Thanks for writing into the show. And now back to the interview. I do want to ask you this too, like it's more like on the concepts thing. And like I said, we clearly have like touched on it some, but once again, as like, as the concept of, could you also explain the concept of production equals independence? Yes. So um, when you can produce for yourself, you can be independent. I mean, so much of our lives are kind of this, this maze of, of trying to get our needs met, trying to trying to find and procure and secure the things that we and our families need. But if you can, if you can make those things for yourself um, and your community, then you get to be outside of that. You can live outside of certain systems that are draining in so many different ways. And it's not that work doesn't go into these things. Um, I personally think that it's more satisfying work than other types of jobs. Yeah. Um, but but the idea that you don't have to be beholden to a system because you don't need it for your survival is, I think, really powerful and really important. And I think that we tend to look at people who are like that as, you know, these kind of weirdos who like live off on their own or live in these like weird communities. But the reality is, is that to be able to provide for yourself is so rare today um, because our learning is so segmented. It's, it's really... I think it's really rare for people to learn things in a way that really pulls everything together um, because the way that we go through our education and the way that we go through our careers is we kind of focus on one thing um, and we don't really often dabble so much in other things and kind of get semi good at them enough that we could do them. You know, think if I, I really wish that I knew like carpentry and electric work and all this stuff, because then I could do so much of that by myself and that would be so valuable. And I'm definitely on my way to learning a lot of those things. Um, it's the way but, to go. It's a, a yeah. I've, I've, I've done construction work for a lot of years of my life, but uh, to, but to your point though, like specialization, like being very, like, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm no electrician and I'm certainly yeah. not like a master carpenter, but you know, if you can do some things for yourself, it's just amazing. Like how much, hardship you can get out of your way. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it gives you so much more autonomy over your life and the way you want to spend your time. Because, you know, when you can provide yourself, you don't have to be beholden to somebody else's schedule. You know, you don't have to like clock in, you don't have to have the commute, you don't have to do these things, you know, obviously some things you can't produce for yourself raw, just because the way that our markets are set up. Um, but it really does give you so much more freedom. And I think the ability to really live a full life. I mean, not that other people aren't, but if that's what you want, like being able to provide for yourself, it's just, it's crucial because you can finally exist outside of some of these systems in a way that really gives you enough time to contemplate, how do I want to live? You know, we don't even really get to think of it yeah. because like we go to college and we get these jobs and like we've got debt and we're so bogged down by all of these things. I mean, I think people are like in their thirties and forties before they can even take a breath and really think of like, what do they want to do and how do they want to live? If then, I mean, yeah, if then, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I don't know why, why they made, made me think of this, but I was just thinking about like, uh, it's uh, it's no secret to anyone. I despise Elon Musk. <laughs> I think, I think, and in so many ways, he's, he's just like the it's just like an example of what's fucking wrong, man. It's like this guy, if you could just and you could be like, all right, well, let's just take that away from him and use it in any way we want, it's unimaginable what you could do with that kind of money. I mean, that's like, yeah. that's like a significant amount of, amount of the Pentagon's budget is like his personal yeah. wealth. Uh, but I anyway. will say, well, all I despise <laughs> hoarding wealth. I do think that a lot of what he's done forces other 
uh, legacy companies and legacy industries to finally start changing, you know, and, and so there is value in that, you know, I'm definitely not like big on hoarding billions. Um, but that being said, I also do like, you know, shaking up some of these crap companies that have had no incentive to change for decades um, and actually making them change because that's what we need. In no way am I uh, refuting what you're saying. I just had like my, my one thing where it's like, uh, it's, you know, people will get a Tesla and they'll be like, look what I'm doing. And I'm like, well, and, and, and I'm no saint or, you know, monk, you know, I have a car, but I also have a bicycle. And, and I live in a city, but yeah, I, I use my bicycle at least 50% of the time for transportation. I mean, I can't, mm -hmm. I mean, also I, I live in a city, so I can, I guess I, I'm sure yeah. if you live in Nebraska and you live in a remote location, you can't be like, well, I'm just going to go bike to the next <laughs> hundred miles yeah, away. Or I don't whatever. live in a remote location where I live is not very conducive to bike travel. And I also generally have children in the car with me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. I'm actually, I'm, I'm being absurd about like, uh, saying that you can have a regular no, car I, and a bicycle and you're better than the Tesla owner. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do get it. I get the concepts though. And, um, and it's difficult, but yeah, I don't know, but I mean, definitely not big on stockpiling wealth because there's so much we can do with it. And I know we have just really gone off away, away from, uh, we're, you know, we're here to talk about, <laughs> you know, food independence, but, and I'm over here talking about transportation, but if I may, I just want to say one last thing and I'll totally drop it. <laughs> it is just <laughs> that like, what we could do better than maybe, uh, Tesla's is we could do, uh, some public transportation, uh, trains and realistic uh, bike lanes. And, yeah. I mean, like, and also like rich people love riding bikes. They like to wear spandex and, you know, just make them do that on their, on their way to like wall street. Yeah. No. Like and I'm, <laughs> I agree with you 100%. That being said though, like it takes so much for cities to actually implement some of those things, you know, to improve public transit should happen and people are pushing for it to happen. Um, but in the meantime, it's like, what can I do in the meantime? I think, you know, I don't appreciate people who have tests and then get really high and mighty about it. Um, but at the same time, if you can signal to, you know, like GM or signal to these companies that really are just also garbage companies um, that we want certain shifts in things. But the other thing is if we have public transportation, where do you want that fuel source to come from? So do you want to make the shift that eventually they'll come from renewable sources? Um, so I think a lot of that, a lot of that just plays into it. I don't know. It's, it's one of those like voting with your dollars things. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things I, th I thought that like, uh, earlier, I think we were discussing that too. Like, you know, eventually if you could produce enough food for yourself, then that would, like I said, it would, it would affect the bottom line of so many organizations and companies, corporations. Uh, there's, I recently read a book. Uh, have you heard of, uh, shit, I'm going to forget his name right now. Great. Whatever. It doesn't matter. He's a nutritionist and he wrote an entire, he wrote a book about like, you know, the psychology of how they do the grocery stores yeah, and you walk yeah. in and it's designed to keep all real food away from you. Mm -hmm. all, all the actual food in the grocery store is like hidden in a way they've hit like, they like hired tons of like psychologists and all kinds of people to like figure out how to like make it to where you just go around buying like uh, poison and horseshit. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, I've I've read similar things with similar concepts. I don't, I haven't read whatever book it is that you're talking about, but it's it's pretty infuriating. Um, Dr. Gregor, of everything that's like, who it was. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, yeah. When you give everything that goes into it, it's um, it's really frustrating. I really started kind of getting into a lot of this stuff when I did um, have my kids because I I was finally doing the research, reading about food. You know, the things that are in food, the things that are in baby products, the things that are you know like candles like you can't like there's just there's no escape from it and like once you get familiar enough to be able to make better choices on one thing you learn about this other thing you know and and it it really like you just kind of spiral and that's I really am big into self-sufficiency because you can cut a lot of that out of your life you know unfortunately like you exist I think you're going to be exposed to a certain level of toxins just from existing in the world, which is honestly crap. And it's frustrating that big companies can make these decisions for you and you can't opt out of like the health detriment. Um, but being, being self-sufficient, producing your own food, being able to do certain things for yourself, um, I, I think it's, it's the best bet to at least a little bit being able to pull back from it while also building your community at the same time. Cause that's, I mean, for me, that's what it's about. It's not about like just doing this and then kind of becoming like a hermit. It's about like pulling up community at the same time, teaching people at the same time, really um, giving people the benefit of what I've learned. So they don't have to like, dig as deep for the information. I think I can bring everything we just said and just tie it all in a little bow right now. First of all, I'm going to apologize to every, anyone that owns a Tesla, dude, good job having an electric car. That's great. Secondly, me claiming that uh, riding a bicycle is a solution. I've been hit by a car three times. The Gosh. amount of alt- the amount of altercations I've had, like insane altercations. People telling them they're gonna kill me and like getting out of the car trying to fight me and shit. Just just riding my bike, you know. Wow. Just, well, I, I'm following the rules as I know they exist. A lot of motorists don't know how the w- rules work. You know, if you're on yeah. a bicycle, you have the same. You are a car. That's how it works. That's you know. That's that's the law, homie. Anyway, it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> the point is I've gotten these terrible fucking uh, altercations. So it would be absurd for me to say like, hey, don't have a Tesla, ride a bike, be like me. I'm, you know, borderline, you know, insane. So I'm not a great example. But moving forward, <laughs> uh, what you're saying is that we're talking about community. And a big part of what, you know, what would be nice is if there was a more... Uh, civil society in the first place you know if people like mm-hmm. saw me on a bicycle and didn't say and you know there's that psychology of people that are in their cars and they don't realize their behavior until they're outside of their car again mm-hmm. and so they're like oh i hate this bicycle guy i'm gonna run him off the road maybe if we were all like uh working together in a food forest you know creating our food together like the way that humans used to be like we would all because yeah, it's like I- that's life like food is life right it is. And I mean, there's so many factors that make people behave that way. I mean, there's, there's so many stressors, the way that we do things and operate. And I mean, even if we're all growing food forests, like we're still going to be stressed out about a bunch of stuff. It's not going to be like some magic societal fix. However, I think getting to the mentality of community first, of producing for our communities, of doing the best that we can, Um, you know, and also trying to bridge some of those divides because a lot of the divide that we might feel for our neighbor, it's very manufactured. Um, and it always serves somebody, you know, you always have to ask if I'm having a negative thought, whether it's about myself, you know, let's think if I'm feeling self-conscious about something on my body or whatever, or, or if I have a negative thought about somebody else, who does this benefit? You know, if I, 
I'm feeling mm-hmm. self-conscious and I like go buy makeup or I go buy something like someone is getting financial gain from the fact that I have this manufactured and perceived detriment. Similarly to if I don't like my neighbor because they look different, they have different religion or a different skin color or different whatever, they speak a different language. There is also somebody who is getting a benefit of that, whether that's a politician or you know, a product that I buy to show that I align with a certain way of thinking. A lot of the frustration and the anger that we feel and the way that we express it is very, very much manufactured. And so when you focus more of your time on community-centered things and you have this exposure to other people, you know, I, I really get frustrated by the fact that people need to be exposed to other people um, to actually care about other people. I get really annoyed by that, but unfortunately that's kind of the reality is that unless you like get to know people and you realize that they're not that different, a lot of people are just kind of going to be jerks. And, you know, as a black female, like I've definitely come to know that, um, in some of my endeavors throughout my life. And I'm very much used to that. Um, but you know, we all more or less want the same things. You know, we want our family to be healthy. We want our kids to thrive. We want, you know, love in our lives. We want health. Like we want, we want the same things. We're really not that different and really working on this stuff. Um, you know, and food is kind of like the bridge between so many things, you know, people sharing meals together, breaking bread, like having that ability to come together. I mean, harvesting that food, sharing that food together, sharing the financial, the emotional benefits of all of those things, I think is so great for our communities. Um, You know, there's no one big catch-all band-aid, but I definitely think that this is a big step in the right direction. No doubt. And, you know, like you said, there's no, there's no band-aid, but if there's one way to get your head right, you know, in certain ways, especially if you're starting to feel like uh, isolationist or whatever, if you go out, if you get, you know, go travel, you know, and find some people that yeah. uh, don't look like you and don't eat like you. And if you can get an opportunity to sit down and eat yeah. with some people that's like, that has, a, they have a completely different culture. And yeah, the thing is, then it's not going to take you very long to realize we all have, for the most part, we're in the same boat. Yeah. We're all humans, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, and like, if you look at most crime, I, I forget what I was reading. I was reading some article long time, and I can't like cite it properly. So I don't know, whatever, no one jump on me for this. But I remember reading something that was discussing that most crime um, stems from basically a lack of resources. Of course, there's really horrible, twisted people out there. And I prefer to like, not spend a lot of time thinking about them because it's just, yeah. you know, really but those actually are disturbing, anomalies. but um yeah. So most crime stems from a lack of resources. Um, and so obviously I'm all about food, having people's needs met because I mean, that, that brings down crime levels. It brings down, you know, kids behavioral issues, quote unquote. And I'm saying that because, you know, I think like kids of certain races and who live in certain areas are more likely to be disciplined for behavioral disturbances than people or other children of the same behavior in other schools and other neighborhoods. And, um, you know, really when people aren't stressed, like I said, about their basic needs, there's so much more that they can do. And then there's so much bad stuff that they don't get involved with in the first place because they don't have to, they're not fighting for the money to provide for their families. You know, they're not, the, the kid who has to get a job to support and supplement his family's income because he needs to make sure that his siblings can eat. Like there's, I mean, if we can just feed our communities, think of what that would do for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and th- we've talked about uh, food forests like quite a bit. And just like one last like time just to, to, go, to go on it because 
in my mind and like, I'm, I'm a very just like visual, like imagination kind mm-hmm. of person. So I'm like literally just kind of imagining like a forest of food. And, and I know you, you clearly said what it, what it really is, but mm-hmm. uh, I just want to like clarify. And like, maybe if you could just talk about it one last time too, it's like uh, the idea is that it, 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 uh, it operates like a, like a, like how we don't have to go and water the forest. Like, you know, yeah, like yeah. Uh, Redwood National Forest doesn't need me to go over there with a hose and make sure that all the trees have yeah, water. Yeah, exactly. That, so like, uh, yeah. And I know that you've already talked about this a little bit, but, and maybe it's just because I don't really, I've just, I've never known much about this concept. So it's like still like to me, visually, I'm just, I'm, I'm literally imagining like an acre of just like edible, delicious plants or whatever. And as, I mean, how close to reality is what I'm thinking? Yeah, <laughs> or am no, I just, or am I just I, I so mean, far off? No, that's it. I mean, people implement food forests in different ways. Like some people don't want to maintain trees, so they make their tallest level bushes um, and then they kind of go down from there. So, but if, and I, I think that the other thing is that people walk, well, not everybody, but a lot of people walk in forests rather regularly, but you don't always take in all of the variety of plant, all of the different layers that are there in front of you. Um, but you know, in a forest, you would have like an overstory tree, which is like a really huge, big tree. And then you'll have some that are kind of smaller. Then you'll have like a shrub layer. Um, you'll have your herbaceous layer, which, you know, like leafy green plants. Um, there's some different ones. Um, there's, then you have like your cover, um, layer. So if you see, I'm trying to think of like a good example, but you know, a lot of people in their food forest will use strawberries because, you know, strawberry will kind of like spread out continual sending out roots and then you get this like nice cover in a forest you know kind of think of it like grass but not grass because grass and lawns is and then you've got like roots and you have climbers are there certain animals that we need for a like a food forest like um well i guess it depends on who you ask and well you're asking me okay so there are going to (laughs) there are going to be animals in your food forest animals are part of our ecosystem um people have different opinions about that and of course it's not so fun when deer come in and like eat everything um you know it's not fun when you have bunnies that are just constantly chewing up and eating the things that you just planted um you know this i think that it it probably depends on the perspective that the person planting the forest takes. You know, there's there's some like natural barrier things that they can do or that you can do and they have different varying levels of effectiveness, you know? So if you have like a, a berry bramble with a bunch of spikes on the bramble, um, sometimes you can plant something that a deer really likes on the one side of it and then they hit the spikes and they don't necessarily want to like go into the main forest. Now That's that being crazy. said, you'd probably have to do that. Yeah, you probably have to do that layer around like the whole thing they're going to get into parts of it, but you can try to kind of deter them, you know, with, with rabbits. One thing you can do is like an olfactory barrier. So like a smell barrier where if they're kind of moving on in a plant that you would really want to not have them eat, you could plant like onions and garlic all around it. Um, and then on the outside of that, give them something that they like. So rabbits really love clover and, um, you know, it's not really, a plant that we use, um, but it grows quickly. It creates like a really nice ground cover. So some people would plant that instead of grass and it's much better than planting grass. Um, and bunnies just love to eat it. And so they'll eat that as much as they want. And then they'll get up to the garlic and the onion and like, they'll smell it, but they've already got this thing that they really like. So then they're kind of less likely to go towards that thing that you're trying to keep them away from, you know? And of course it depends how you plant this out. 
varying levels of success, um, just kind of depending on how you're planning your space, um, there are some ways to handle them. Um, the reality is that they're going to eat things just like they do in any type of garden, just like they do in the forest. They're a part of it. But um, the idea is kind of that you have this higher yield um, and, and that it doesn't really impact your food. Like there was a project in India. I can't remember the name of the town where it was, but they were having a problem with the elephants coming in and eating their crop. So, you know, this was like a big back and forth between the people who lived in the space and the elephants of trying to like chase them out. And it, it was obviously dangerous because elephants are huge and they can stomp on you without even meaning to. And so there are people who had died from it. And so then I think it was because of COVID, so many people had moved back from that town who lived in different cities, um, you know, with tech jobs and doing different things. And they actually planted out this whole field that was for the elephants. So they still had their crop. And then the elephants basically had this space where they were encouraged to be. And the elephants never crossed the barrier into the fields where the people were, um, you know, harvesting their crop and then selling that. So it ended up working out for everybody. So it's kind of, there's like, there's different ways to handle it. And, and obviously some of them take more energy, but animals are going to be a part of it. And it would kind of be weird if they weren't, you know, if you don't see animals and bugs, it's like, what are you doing? Where is the space? It's not really part of the ecosystem. Uh, first of all, that was all amazing stuff. But I have to tell you, Leia, we are getting dangerously close to the lightning round. Uh, yeah. I have to tell you how this goes. The lightning round is the part of the podcast where I ask you the questions super fast. You don't have time okay. to think. And you you seem to be a very cerebral person that thinks a lot. <laughs> you can't think. This has to come uh, gut reaction straight from the heart. Okay. All right. Um, and Sometimes these are super easy, but I'm honestly, I know a couple of these are like at least one or two is kind of hard. So I'm sorry, but no, that's, that's okay. How it goes. I'll try. I'll try. The yeah. podcast. You can tell that I'm pretty wordy. So All right. I think, you know, I think, you know, this one pretty much easy right here. Um, what is the easiest plant to grow in a home garden? Just say like, you say, say like you're like me and like, you just suck at this and you're like, all right. And I know it, uh, this, it varies from regions, but like we're both in the central time zone. So Let's say that. Um, <laughs> maybe peas or like tomato, like something really common that a lot of people at the garden store can help you out with really easily. Peas are really easy to grow? I mean, yeah. So peas probably aren't what like most people would do, but like I think that peas just grow really easily. Like you just put them in and you keep them watered and then they grow really fast. Cool. All right. I know most people like that I know that do this, they always grow tomatoes. So I guess that must be also, yeah. like you said, like pretty damn easy, right? Yeah, I mean, seeds. yeah, you can, I think like some people get really into it with like the pruning and everything and how to properly like produce the biggest yield. But yeah, tomatoes, I mean, they're pretty, it's all, yeah, just put it in the ground and let it grow. <laughs> all right. Not super in depth, but I am going to ask this like about like, let's just say like right now, I want to do a community garden. Uh, how's that going to work? Like, do I have to contact the government and like get their permission and like or that is probably more of an in-depth <laughs> because it depends on your <laughs> okay. county and your okay, city I'm sorry um, it just depends on your city I mean if you own the land if you own the space you can just make a community garden in your front yard you can plan it out you can put a sign that tells your neighbors that you can come by and pick whatever you want and you could do that tomorrow if you're going to be like renting city land or something like there's going to be different rules that go along with that different applications thing like things like that I just realized how insanely complex that question really is when I, after I said it was a lightning round question, that would be the answer. Because <laughs> I realized even if it is my own land and I don't involve the government, 
and let's say that there's like a, an outbreak of E. coli in my garden and I, I kill a bunch of people, that's a <laughs> that's like a big deal, right? Well, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you're not doing it on a large <laughs> scale, so I think that that wouldn't be very likely. Um, but you know, if you have like a homeowners association and they're going to complain about the fact that you don't have manicured grass in your front yard because you have all these beautiful garden beds instead, you know, you have to see if there's a chance you could be fined if somebody could come tear it down there's i mean there's definitely a lot that goes into growing food and yeah. it's frustrating because it's all just red tape that makes it hard for people who are doing something very logical and basic and my main thing right now i'm really trying to do is actually uh get like a a beehive yes uh, oh i want to i want to have bees my my uh, uh dear friend of the podcast cindy moore was on here she's a uh, bee farmer she's got like thousands of beehives so she's like like gnarly she like takes semi trucks you know she's the reason we have avocados and almonds and shit oh that's so cool i need to connect with her because i definitely need to learn oh, more about beekeeping. totally can't uh cindy was episode i'm like i'm 45 okay but uh yeah, if you want to talk to her just let me know like she's she's amazing so like dude that's her whole like her whole thing she's just like uh knowledgeable about like yeah. bees in general and like we need people like that keeping like because wild bees are dying off so beekeepers mm -hmm. are becoming uh suddenly becoming like a part of the like uh keeping the environment yeah. together i'm sorry the lightning round always goes off the rails so <laughs> <laughs> no, i mean that's okay. okay oh here's the one that i thought was going to be the hard question but apparently i just went ahead and shot you like two hard ones before the one that i thought would be hard but this actually is a very difficult question but i want to know if you have any ideas for this that's uh do you have any tips for how people can try to purchase food uh ethically if they don't have access to things like farmers markets or small businesses so like so your your situation is maybe like you know a major corporate grocery store that might be like yeah. the um so you said farmers markets and small businesses i don't know if that would cut out like a cooperative um so some people aren't aware that there might be a cooperative in their town that they could contact um a lot of you know smaller scale farms that might not do farmers markets will do something called a csa which is community supported agriculture and you can contact that farm and you would pay a an amount generally like it's a lump sum at the beginning of the season and then you would get like a weekly box of produce or however they decide to distribute it from that farm um, that you would generally pick up. Sometimes they can uh, deliver it, but it, it just depends on location. So those would probably be my two, co-op or CSA. Um, otherwise, I would look at the grocery store and see if they have any agreements, like any sections that are, you know, local yeah, I know it, it's tough when a lot of people don't have options and that's kind of where the food desert is like a big, huge problem. But, yeah. um, you know, some people shop at a co-op, which is like a grocery store and it's a community thing. But then there might be like a smaller community co-op where those people produce that food and then, um, you know, they've got something worked out for the distribution and the pricing. All right. So you heard it here first. Get those co-ops going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right now this is a uh, like let me i'm i made this a little wordy i'm gonna i'm gonna make it less wordy but I, I was just thinking about how corporations they can like claim that they're individuals that's how that's why they're able to make donations uh to like campaigns and keep uh you know keep monsanto basically in the government in a lot of ways uh but because of that like you know logically that would mean that they should be able to be like able to be tried in court uh as an individual 
mm-hmm. for like, let's say like felonious restraint or whatever, for like, you know, for migrant workers, like, you know, if I was, if, if one per- if I did that, if I was just one person and I had yeah, yeah. a thousand people that I was violating their rights, you know, it'd be very easy to take me to court and yeah. lock away, you know, throw me away, lock with the key and shit. So the real question is, do you like have any idea like, like uh, or maybe some people that you work with, like have any idea, like how in the future we might be able to do legal action with like with the system itself, or is that just as it pertains to uh, uh, food production? <clears throat> no, I mean, or... literally uh, holding the people accountable that are committing the uh, human rights abuses. I have no idea that is so far outside my wheelhouse, but <laughs> I mean, I think that obviously the biggest thing is first going to be education. So I mean, people just, they have to understand what's going on before they can take a step to try to, you know, change what's going on. I think that a lot of people get away with things because that knowledge is not there. And then even when that knowledge is there, we kind of normalize it and then we forget about it, you know, because there's so, I mean, there's so many dumpster fires just everywhere. So people can really only focus on like a few things at a time. Yeah. Um, But I think really like making the effort to pay attention, continuing to be a part of those conversations. And then, you know, just trying to take the steps from there. But I, I mean, the legal stuff is definitely not my area of expertise. <laughs> I was, I was, it was just out of curiosity. It was, uh, oh, okay, here we go. I know you can do this one. <clears throat> uh, what is the simplest and easiest action an individual can take toward creating agricultural freedom? So like just like, let's say like, I was going to do something today. Like, is there anything today? I could do? Like, this very moment, I could get up and I could go do something that would be worthwhile. Well, when you say agricultural freedom, what exactly do you mean? Well, ultimately, I mean, kind do of you mean like, like something good for the environment or like something kind of on like the logistical, like legal corporate end. Damn, you hit me back with more questions and I don't know. How to <laughs> ask questions. I, don't I, know just... I only know how to ask them. Shit. Uh, okay. If you're talking uh, about like, okay, just good uh, for the environment. Here's what I want. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, what I was hoping you would say is you would be like, well, you know, if you pound, if you plant a sunflower that right there, that's going to be a, a million sequestered carbons. That's what I want. I want, I want magic fixes. So All right, my, my thing question would be bullshit. stop cutting grass and stop breaking leaves. And I All know right. that this is going to be right in the heart of people who love their lawn maintenance but I mean the first off like all of the grass in your yard is non-native anyway it's got a really shallow root base it's not good for anything it would be better if you just ripped it out and put in like some native prairie species or well depending on where you are um but I mean the most basic thing you can do is just stop cutting it and then let the leaves just be there they retain the water they fertilize the soil I mean they provide homes for all of the little animals and stuff that we love but we're just kind of like not having here because we don't create a um a good environment for them like just leave the leaves alone oh yeah so. that was amazing also a uh, shout out back to like what i was talking about like uh with uh cindy the beekeeper because that was one of her main things is like plant flowers in the yard fuck your grass you know yes things oh. that like keep the bees alive so uh shout out to that and also uh thank you for challenging me back I, obviously I fell apart because I wasn't. It. <laughs> no, I am. Um, I like I, to I make just, sure I'm clear on what I'm about to say. Oh no. I just, uh, I came to you for answers and I didn't realize you might expect me to know anything. I'm like, <laughs> Oh shit. That's not what I do. I just ask. <laughs> yeah. No, just stop cutting your grass everyone now. 
Leah, this has been just absolutely fantastic. I know you're going to, I know you're a very busy person. I know you're out here doing great work, educating people. Um, so thank you so much for coming on my visa round podcast and talking to me. And uh, also thanks for challenging me at the end. I deserve that. It was about <laughs> damn time. Somebody showed that I don't know how to answer a question. <laughs> well, thank you for having me again. I, I appreciate it. This was, this was a good time. Before you go, can you tell everyone like uh, just like ways they might be able to like check out uh, like just uh, your organization, uh, what you do, where you're at, like all that stuff? Yeah. So um, my organization that I'm starting, I'm trying to get nonprofit status for that. Um, I'm in the process of it. That's called Hakima for the Future. Um, so I've got a website, hakimaforthefuture.com, also Facebook, Instagram. Um, I'm sure when this is posted, you know, we can put the links for it in there. Um, but yeah, also Instagram is leia.womboy underscore. So it's not like the most easily delivered um, <laughs> handle ever, but yeah, definitely if there's questions. B-U-I. Yep. Yeah. Have a good night, Leah. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to My Views Are My Own. If you would like to contact me, you can hit me up at myviewsaremyown.com. And there's a button on there. You just click it, send me any kind of message you want. Or you could go to Instagram at my views are my own underscore podcast. Or if you're really feeling crazy, you could go to Twitter at my views are my own. Wait, nope, that's not it. My views underscore podcast. Oh, or, you know, blow me away by finding another way to do it. And I will be impressed. Thank you.